Hi, my name is Tamar Garb, and I'm the director of the Institute of Advanced Studies at UCL, um, who are hosting this particular launch and conversation. So I really want to just spend a minute or so welcoming you and saying how delighted we are to see um, such a big audience. Uh, do please come on in. I'm sure people will be trickling in. If you are sitting at the edge of a, of a seat and can move up, it might help so that if people do come in, they can just move into the rows. Um, can I say that this is an event that is one of a series of events that we have hosted both as book launches, but also as a series of discussions around Israel-Palestine, questions of anti-Semitism, Judophobia, ongoing debates and discussions that are very vivid and active in our political communities and within our university context as well. So the context of this particular event is a series of book launches uh, that have taken place in the IAS over the last years. Uh, the book launches are not just celebratory events. They are that too. And afterwards, we invite you to join with us in uh, having a drink, buying a book, celebrating, and talking uh, informally uh, amongst yourselves and with um, Professor Rashid Khalidi as well. But the Events always start with serious engagement with the book itself and with the intellectual propositions and forms of knowledge that the book presents to us. So I do want to say that um, we have hosted a number of quite controversial books. Sometimes the discussion can get quite um, excited and that we like that as long as it's an intellectual exchange. So please do feel free in the conversation and in the discussion to raise important issues and questions um, and uh, 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 you know, points that really, really um, exercise you about the book, but always, of course, remembering that this is a university and that we protect academic freedom and the rights of our guests and our community to articulate in reasoned ways the arguments that they want to put forward, but that we don't tolerate anything that might be injurious or hurtful to anybody here. So I ask you that with due respect before the event begins, um, because we really, really do want to engage in a conversation that is productive and open and generative and generous and warm, as well as critically engaged. So I also wanted to show you that we have a number of events that are related to similar themes. You'll see they've been on a continuous loop here. There are four coming up in the months ahead that launch books that relate to these issues or that raise questions and debates and discussions, often which are very painful and difficult within university communities. Um, we don't want to shy away from them. We want to confront them. We want to be uh, talking in our community about them and with our colleagues and friends from the wider um, community as well. So it's in that spirit that we are really delighted to host this particular um, book launch and to welcome Professor Khalidi here from uh, Columbia University um, in New York. And also, I'd like to int introduce my colleague, Seth Ziska, who will be in conversation with Rashid Khalidi and then who will chair the proceedings and open it up to all of you. And then we hope to um, enjoy a drink together afterwards in the foyer. Thank you, Tamar, and thank you to the IAS for hosting us this evening, uh, and to Albert and uh, Patricia. And also, I want to thank specifically the Center for Palestine Studies at SOAS, uh, and also McCann, which is a Palestinian-led educational organization 
uh, that does a lot of workshops around questions related to Israel-Palestine here in London, both of them for co-hosting uh, tonight's event. Um, it's really a pleasure for me, I should just say, I'm Seth Anziska, as Tamar said. I'm a lecturer uh, in Jewish-Muslim relations and Israeli and Palestinian history here at UCL uh, in the Hebrew and Jewish Studies Department. And it's my great pleasure and delight to have with us this evening Professor Rashid Khalidi, uh, who's, I think this is his first visit uh, at UCL, and it's really an honor to have him launch his book with us this evening. It just came out with Profile Books this week. Uh, and there will be copies deeply discounted for sale afterwards for 15 pounds. So that's way below the Amazon price. You can support your local <laughs> London publisher. Uh, and you can have them signed by the author. Uh, let me just uh, introduce, say a few words uh, about Professor uh, Khalidi. And I want to just say this both as a, a, a student of Professor Khalidi's from my time at Columbia, but also as a wider observer of questions around Israel-Palestine and the Middle East, and to say that Rashid has been a teacher to many of us in this room, whether in person or informally through his scholarship and his public engagement. And he's the foremost historian of Palestine writing today, uh, a great um, and prodigious author of many books and articles, both academic and scholarly, as well as public, uh, publicly focused. You'll see him probably often uh, in places like The Guardian, The New York Times, um, and also on television and on the BBC. Uh, he received his BA from Yale, his PhD or his DPhil from Oxford with Albert Hurani, the great Middle East historian. Um, and he's the editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies, the leading uh, academic- Co-editor. Co Co-editor. The leading academic venue and research on all things Palestine and Palestinian related. Um, and he was the former president of the Middle East Studies Association and also, and we'll hear about this a little bit more this evening, an advisor to the Palestinian delegation to the Madrid and Washington Arab-Israeli peace negotiations from October 1991 until June of 1993. So thinking a little bit about the crossover between academia, historical research, and public engagement as well as diplomacy. He's the author of many books, I'll mention in particular uh, the Iconic Palestinian Identity, The Construction of Modern Nationalist Consciousness, published by Columbia University Press in 1996, one of the foremost studies of Palestinian nationalism. Also, Under Siege, PLO Decision-Making During the 1982 War, uh, The Iron Cage, The Story of the Palestinian Struggle for Statehood, uh, as well as many other books. I won't list all of them, uh, and many prominent articles. Uh, he's been awarded the Lionel Trilling Book Award, the Memo Palestine Book Award, uh, and the Wokemess uh, Award for Outstanding Contributions to Middle Eastern Studies. He's also, on a more personal level, somebody who has uh, taught me and many other students about Palestine, about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and about the wider Middle East in our own research and writing, and has really had a huge influence on a generation of scholars and students. Um, and this book, which I'll just say a word about before we start talking, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, is, uh, I think, in a way, one of the most interesting uh, and most accessible of Professor Khalidi's uh, works. And it's, in a way, a personal reflection based on some family history of his own involvement and his family's own involvement in the question of Palestine for over 100 years. And uh, he's going to talk about his approach, how it's different than some of his other books. And we're going to also discuss some of the different features of that 100 years war on Palestine. And the way that this is going to work is uh, Professor Khalidi will speak for a few minutes, 10 minutes, uh, about how he came to write the book. Um, and then we're going to uh, begin a conversation uh, about some of the themes and the issues that he raises. And then I want to open it up 
to questions from the audience. And I welcome any questions or comments. Just please keep them short and in the form of a question. Uh, if you'd rather pass something to the front you don't want to ask publicly, that's by all means acceptable. Just send a paper up and we'll read the question from here. We'll aim hopefully to finish by 7.30, 7.45, and then you can join us for a reception and a book signing in the foyer outside. I'm just going to put up the slides we're going to talk about, and I'll have Rashid begin. Okay. So please join me in welcoming Professor Khalidi here to UCLA. So shall I begin? Well, thank you all for coming, and thank you, Tamar, for that lovely introduction. Thank you, Seth, um, and to the others who organized this, my publisher, um, my UK publisher profile, um, and the three universities that it took to get me to come, um, four, four universities that it took to get me to come, uh, two of them kindly hosting this event. Um, I'm not going to talk for a long time. Uh, I'd rather we have the conversation that Seth and I have agreed on, and I'd also be happy to take questions later on. Um, I want to just say a couple things about how I came to write this book. Uh, I've written a lot about Palestine and the Middle East and this conflict, um, and I've been thinking about it and writing about it since the 1960s, before some of you were born, maybe. Um, and I've been publishing about it since then. Um, but everything I've published, with very few exceptions, has essentially been meant for an academic, scholarly audience of, of Middle East specialists. Um, and I was urged first by my son, who's a playwright, and who appreciates my academic uh, side, but thinks that it's a little bit dry, and said to me, Pa, Pa, why don't you write something ordinary people can read? Um, and he urged me and urged me, and I said to him, well, if you'll help me, in trying to figure out a way to do this, um, perhaps, I can, perhaps I can give it a stab. I mean, I've never written a book with the first person singular as the, as the, the voice. Um, and I've never written anything except the occasional op-ed, perhaps. Um, and so he and I set out a, uh, a little sketch of what I wanted to do, and my agent and my publisher in the United States helped me to turn it into a book. Um, and it is completely different than anything I've ever done before, partly because um, I try to make it relatable and accessible and, and, and uh, a book that it, it is not only for specialists. I mean, there are 45 pages of, of footnotes if you really like that sort of thing. So there's, there's a grounding to it. It's not just off the top of my head. Um, but um, I, I, first of all, use a different voice and, 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 and try to make it, I, I tried to write it in a style that was accessible. And secondly, I realized that if I was going to tell this story, I might as well bring in things that I know and nobody else knows. I mean, I was sitting in the Security Council chamber, chamber on the uh, 10th of June, 1967, watching uh, the Security Council fail to pass a ceasefire resolution. My father worked for the United Nations, and I was in the visitor's gallery. And I, I know something about that that nobody else knows, or very few people except the diplomats involved in their governments knew. No. Uh, and I put that in the book, and those kinds of not just personal uh, observations of things that I saw or was involved in or was told, but other things that come from my family history and the history of others. Uh, 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 someone who, who was taught here in the UK, Yazid Saig, his father, and his memoirs are featured in, in one chapter of the book, and so are, so are those of other people. Uh, I tried to, in other words, tell the story 
um, through the lives of individuals um, who were themselves involved, some of them uncles and aunts of mine, some of them uh, people I knew, uh, and my own experiences in a few cases. Um, from the 60s onwards, when I was conscious, uh, I insert myself a little more into the story. Uh, certainly for the negotiations, I know things nobody else knows. I and a very few other people know things that very few, at least, other people know. And I put not only that, but the documents uh, that, I, that, I, that I had access to. Um, the same is true of the 1982 war, uh, when we were living in Lebanon uh, with two of our kids, and, and my wife was pregnant with our third. Uh, I put a lot of that in. Um, and I think that that gives a kind of tone to the book that I hope people will find accessible. And I hope that makes it, makes it uh, uh, not only accessible, but also makes it something that people will feel um, they can relate to in a way that if I just cited the documents about the 82 war, you might not, you might, you might not uh, have the same reaction. Um, I don't want to say very much more, actually. Well, then I, so want let's you, stop. I, I want you actually to start with a reading from the beginning of the mm -hmm. book and give us a sense uh, of the first figure who enters into the story, uh, your great-great-uncle, Yusuf Dia al-Khalidi, and uh, we'll talk about him in a moment. I'll put his photograph up while you start reading. Right. Okay, these are the first couple of paragraphs of the book. For a few years during the early 1990s, I lived in Jerusalem for several months at a time, doing research in the private libraries of some of the city's oldest families, including my own. With my wife and children, I stayed in an apartment building belonging to a Khaldi family waqf, or religious endowment, in the heart of the cramped, noisy old city. From the roof of this building, there was a view of two of the greatest masterpieces of early Islamic architecture. The shining golden dome of the rock was just over 300 feet away on the Haram al-Sharif. Behind it lay the silver, the smaller silver-gray cupola of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, with the Mount of Olives in the background. In other directions, to the west and to the north, one could see the old city's churches and synagogues, the domes and the spires. Just down Babisidsa Street was the main building of the Khaldi Library, which was founded in 1899 by my grandfather, Hajrat ibn Khaldi, with a bequest from his mother, Khadija al-Khaldi, my great-grandmother. The library houses more than 1,200 manuscripts, mainly in Arabic, some in Persian and Ottoman Turkish as well, the oldest dating back to the early 11th century, including some 2,000 19th century Arab print, Arabic printed books and miscellaneous family papers, the collection is one of the most extensive in all of Palestine that is still in the hands of its original owners. More you want one more? Yeah. Sure, one more. <laughs> At the time of my stay, the main library structure, which dates from around the 13th century, it's actually a little older than that, but we're not sure, was undergoing restoration. So the contents were being stored temporarily in huge cardboard boxes in a Mamluk-era building connected to our apartment by a narrow stairway. I spent over a year among those boxes, actually close to two years, going through dusty, worm-eaten books, documents, and letters belonging to generations of Khaldis, among them my great-great-great-uncle, Yusuf Dia ad-Din Pasha al-Khaldi. I refer to him as Yusuf Dia in the book. Through his papers, I discovered a worldly man with a broad education acquired in Jerusalem, Malta, Istanbul, and Vienna, a man who was deeply interested in comparative religion, especially in Judaism and who owned a number of books in European languages on this and other subjects. Great. Well, and here's a photograph uh, of Yusuf that's in the book. And I actually want to start with him, because I want to ask two things. First, I want to talk about 
what is it to be a historian and to write about your family? Mm. How is this uh, different for you than I think other kinds of accounts we might get of Palestine? Because so many of the figures that feature in the book are people directly related to you. And in particular, if we talk about uh, Yusuf Diyal Khalidi, and the students in my module on Israel and Palestine will know this because we've read some of his writing, he has a very uh, pointed, famous exchange through uh, the French uh, chief rabbi Tzadok Khan with Theodore Herzl. And this is really the first meaningful exchange between a prominent Palestinian figure and a founder of the Zionist movement. And so I wanted to ask, how does Yusuf Diyal see Zionism? and the aspirations for a Jewish state in Palestine in the late 19th century, in this late Ottoman moment? Uh, and how does Herzl reply? So might we think about this figure in the broader context of the first early emergence of the questions around Israel and Palestine? Let me answer the first part of your question first, because I think that approaching a subject like this through one's own personal family histories um, means that to some extent, it's skewed. It's skewed by the sources that I'm using. Um, one could easily write uh, from multiple other perspectives um, involving uh, individual sets of private papers. And if one had privileged access to them, um, one would you know, wait, give them more weight, perhaps. And I think probably I do. At one point, I thought of writing a different kind of history and bringing in other, other people's memoirs, bringing in other papers that I had access to. I had access to the, to the papers of at least two other families in Jerusalem. And some of them included some political stuff that was quite interesting. But I realized it wouldn't have the same personal tone. Uh, and so I, I didn't do that. I, I did include some stuff of that sort. So that's an answer to your first question. As far as Yusuf Leah's attitude towards uh, Zionism is concerned, I think he had a particular perspective on this because he had spent a long time in Vienna. Vienna at the time had a mayor by the name of Karl Luger, L-E-U-G-E-R, a ferocious anti-Semite, uh, to whom there still exists a statue uh, in, uh, in, a, in a plaza in Vienna. It's disgusting. Um, and he had worked there. He had studied there. He had taught there at the university, at the Royal and Imperial uh, University. And he knew uh, European anti-Semitism very, very well, uh, both from his readings and from his personal experiences in Russia where he was a diplomat, an Ottoman diplomat, and in Vienna, where he had taught. And I think he was in exile for a time. Um, so he knew a great deal about Zionism. And he knew a great deal about anti-Semitism. And the letter to Herzl, via the chief rabbi of France, um, uh, indicates that. Uh, he shows a great sympathy for Zionism, in principle. He says, you know, in, nothing could be more just uh, than this. He says, the problem is, this is a country that's already inhabited. And these people will not agree to be superseded. And this program cannot be implemented. But he has no problem with Zionism per se. He has a problem with the program that he knows Herzl has already enunciated uh, at the Zionist Congress. The letter is two years after the first Zionist Congress. Um, so uh, I think this is a, a point of view that is not necessarily unique. I'm sure there were others, others other Palestinians and other, others in the Arab world who understood anti-Semitism and perhaps understood Zionism at that early, early, early stage. Um, but he did have a bit of a privileged position. I mean, it was Vienna, which is the, which is the I mean, this is where, this is where uh, Herzl's own outlook developed, from there to Paris and so on and so forth. Well, then it raises the question of Herzl's response. So how Herzl does or does not see the question of the Arab inhabitants of Palestine. And I, I want maybe for you to talk about how this fits with the broader questions you raise in the entire 
kind of arc of your work, which is, well, how can we discern Palestinian national identity? Who are these people living in late Ottoman Palestine? Right. Are they Arabs? Are they Jerusalemites? Are they Haithawis? Right. Are they Palestinian? And how does Herzl see them? Right. Well, again, two questions. Let me answer the first, uh, Herzl, and then uh, what were the Palestinians at that time? Um, Herzl, one of the points I make in this book is that the erasure of the Palestinians has been a constant feature of this war on them. If you're going to replace an indigenous population with a new population, whatever that population's claims, it's essential that the name of the place, that the people who live there be, if not eliminated physically, which wasn't the objective, be erased. And all of the enablers, the major international enablers of the Zionist project and the Zionist movement have worked quite steadily over this 100 years to do that. And so uh, Herzl's letter, uh, which to his credit uh, was a courteous response. Uh, Balfour didn't even mention the Palestinians. The mandate for Palestine doesn't even mention the Palestinians. Um, Security Council Resolution 242 of 1967 doesn't even mention the Palestinians. One of the core aspects of the conflict is not mentioned in the supposed uh, a framework for a resolution of the conflict. How can you resolve a conflict if you don't even mention the, a core party? But that is characteristic of this process of erasure. They're not there, they don't exist, they're not important, they can be ignored. So to his credit, Herzl actually responded quite quickly and in a very courteous letter. But he ignored almost everything that Yusuf Bia said, and that's the point. Um, and he even raised questions that Yusuf Bia's letter never mentioned. He said, who would think of sending them away? Yusuf Dia never mentions, you're going to chase us out. But Herzl has this in his mind, we know from his own diaries. We're going to spirit them away, he says, in an entry in, in, in his diaries, um, which, of course, Yusuf Dia didn't know at the time and doesn't mention in his letter. So there's some very interesting things. There are some very interesting tropes in, in Herzl's letter, which I think shows a lot about how he thought uh, of the Palestinians. And as far as what the Palestinians were and how they saw themselves, again, this goes back to an earlier piece of work I did, the book Palestinian Identity that you mentioned. Um, I don't think most Jews and I don't think most Palestinians in 1899 yet thought of themselves in national terms, yet thought of themselves as, 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 as constituting a national entity which necessitated their political expression within the context of a nation state. Uh, that was the view of some Zionists at that time, and that was the view, or many Zionists at the time, and that was the view of some Palestinians, perhaps, or perhaps not. I think most people thought of themselves in terms of the sovereignties under which they lived, and in the case of Palestinians, they thought of themselves in terms of family, place, religion, and so on and so forth. And I would say that was true of most Jews as well at the time. Uh, Zionism later becomes a, a powerful political movement, later uh, develops the loyalty, or the loyalties of many people become attached to the Zionist project, and Palestinians come to think of themselves as Palestinians as a primary focus of national identity. In 1899, I don't think that was the case for most members of either what we now call peoples. Well, the reason I ask that is because one of the big tropes in thinking or talking about the history of Palestine and the history of Zionism is there's no such thing as a Palestinian people. Right. I get asked this in my own teaching. I know you get asked this. You know, these people didn't have a national identity, therefore they don't have a claim, therefore they're not indigenous, therefore what happens is justified. And yeah, that, th that, that in a way is, I think, what some of your work is oriented towards addressing. How do we understand whether these people can be constituted as a collective, deserving right. of rights? Right. I mean, the problem with this is the eternal deceit of nationalism. 
which is that nationalism is always rooted in an age-old history. So the French go back to Vercingetorix, and nos ancêtres les Gaulois are the basis of French identity. It's complete balderdash. It's poppycock. There's no reality to it. It's a myth created by the 19th century French schooling system to train little French boys and girls and turn them into Frenchmen. Um, and that's what all nationalisms do. Um, as I've said, if you were to ask the great-great-grandfather or the grandfather or the father of Herzl or the great-grandfather or the father of Yusuf Bia, what are you? The last thing they would have said is Israeli, that I'm part of a Jewish people which must find its realization in a Jewish nation state in the land of Israel. Nobody would have said that in 1800 or 1850. So the idea that there's an eternal nation of Israel just waiting to be recreated or an eternal nation of Palestine is, in my view, complete nonsense. It's a, it's a nationalist myth. Now, did these two peoples constitute national entities in the course of the, of the 20th century, basically? Yes. Were there people before that who thought that way? Yes. But did most people think that way? Absolutely not. And that's true of all nationalisms. I mean, for heaven's sakes, most of the, of the nation states and the nationalities and so forth that exist may have ancient roots, may have connections to older peoples. The Jewish people is the root of the, of the modern sense of, of national identity that Zionism has created. Uh, and, and there are similar roots for other, uh, other uh, 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 national entities. But the, the national idea didn't exist in the 18th or the, or the 17th century. And even in the 19th century, it was only beginning to take hold. The French Revolution and so on are the beginning of it, really. So it's in this context, then, that Herzl's response is also one of saying, you will enhance, through the Zionist movement, the economic and material well-being well of the local Arab population. This is part and parcel of Herzl's response. And right. it, it brings me to an argument that's in the subtitle of the book, which is a history of settler colonial conquest and resistance. Because often historians, modern Jewish history, people like Derek Pensler have talked about the comparative colonial aspects of Al Herzl's thinking. This is very much of a 19th century version of how we think about conquest. We could see the same in Arthur Rupin's writings. Um, but you make an argument in the book that this modern history of Palestine can best be understood in these terms, as a mm -hmm. colonial war waged against the indigenous population by a variety of parties to force them to relinquish their homeland to another people against their will. And I want to know, in light of the Herzl response, but in light of the entire arc of the argument of the book, why was it important for you to have the term settler colonial mm -hmm. in the title? Well, uh, I'm aiming at an audience which, at best, thinks of this conflict as one between two national movements or two peoples, and which sees a completely false equivalence between them. Oh, this is a conflict between right and right, or this is you know, the Palestinian people and the Israeli people or the Jewish people. Well, that's a, that is an aspect of the conflict. It is a conflict between two peoples. There's no question. There is, an, there is an Israeli nation state which is rooted in a modern nation that has been created by Zionism. It's one of the most successful modern national projects of the 20th and 21st century. There's no question of that, that the Palestinians think of themselves as a people and have been, at the very least, an enormous nuisance internationally as a people and have asserted themselves in a variety of ways is, a, is incontrovertible. Um, but what I was trying to do was to get beyond that, in my view, largely false framing of this conflict and to show that this is not just a struggle between a bunch of Palestinians and a bunch of Israelis or a bunch of uh, Zionists and late, then later the State of Israel. This is a struggle that could not possibly have occurred the way it occurred, nor could Israel and the Zionist movement had the successes that they had were it not for external support for this movement. Britain made the Zionist project possible. 
The United States and the Soviet Union in 1947 made the creation of a Jewish state possible. American support from 67 onward made Israel's hegemony in this region possible. French support and British support at other phases played a, a, an important role. Israel has a nuclear arsenal because of France, and so on and so forth. The other aspect of it is I'm not concocting the idea of this as a settler colonial movement. That was integral to the self presentation of the Zionist movement. Most of the towns and villages and former, uh, uh, of the earliest uh, Zionist settlement in Palestine were established by the Jewish Colonization Agency. That's what they called themselves. That's not me, that's them. Uh, read Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky goes on and on and on. We are engaged in a colonial project. Every indigenous people necessarily and inevitably resists. It's only an iron wall, which he means to be British bayonets at the time, he's writing in the 20s, yeah. which can protect us and enable us to build up. So the self-description uh, as, as a colonial project uh, is, is, is completely, it's prevalent from the beginnings, from Herzl's time, right up to the 1940s. It only changes in World War II and the conflict with the British after the White Paper in 1939. Uh, decolonization occurs, colonization goes out of fashion, suddenly psh, that disappears. Uh, the Zionist movement is a national movement, which is certainly true, and it's an anti-colonial movement, which is extraordinary. Okay, so, so there's an effort here then to recover a kind of history of the settler colonial uh, elements of Zionism that you feel have been erased or have been right. absent since the 40s. Mm -hmm. But as you also say in the introduction, you've always made clear it's also a story of nationalism. And here we could think about the ways in which scholars like Zev Sternhal and others have talked about the dueling impulses of Zionism, both as a kind of colonial movement and as a national movement, and that these two things can coexist at the same time. Right. Um, and in that sense, I, I want to talk, talk about the turning points in the struggle over Palestine that you outline, because you start the first chapter uh, from 1917 and the Balfour Declaration, which we'll get to in a moment, and then you lead all the way up to the intermittent wars on Gaza in the 2000s. And in the first opening chapter, you lay out that this changing geopolitical landscape in Palestine as the Ottoman Empire is collapsing and the British are moving in, you begin sort of the story in this moment and you, you start actually with your own family. Mm -hmm. uh, you talk about your grandfather, Hajraji Bel Khadri, your grandmother, Amina, known as Um Hassan, and you talk about how they left their home in the outskirts of Jaffa as General Allenby is advancing northwards and then they return uh, to tell Arish and they welcome the British. So how does your own family reflect some of these divided loyalties with the arrival of the British into Palestine? Well, my, my grandfather uh, and the family were obliged to leave because there was an Ottoman evacuation order for the whole coastal region as the British army advanced northwards from Gaza after they finally broke the back of Ottoman resistance uh, around Gaza. Um, and when they come back, the British are there or soon after they return, the British are there. That's my grandfather in the middle, um, and my grandmother next to him over there, and various cousins and uncles uh, and aunts uh, scattered around them. Um, and he has a, he's, he's conflicted, because four of his sons, this is a picture from the 20s, uh, four of his sons were serving in the Ottoman army, fighting the British. In fact, he, d he knew that two of them were missing in action and had actually been captured. He, we later, he later found out had been captured by the British. Two of them were still fighting the British and were uh, retreating with the Ottoman army northwards through Palestine at the time uh, that the British occupied Jaffa. Um, and so he greets the Ottoman, the British soldiers and uh, uh, my grandmother thinks he's saying, ya welcome, ya welcome, that he's saying something 
<laughs> something that might get them into trouble. But uh, uh, according to my aunt who told me the story, he was actually trying to say, welcome, welcome. <laughs> Hoping, I assume, that the British troops wouldn't do them harm uh, 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 if they found out that four of, four of his sons were fighting uh, against, the, uh, against the British. Um, and I, I, I tell a bit of their story. Uh, the, the UK edition of the book has a, has a different cover. I should have brought the uh, US edition. The US edition has a picture of the remains of, our, of my grandfather's house in Tabirish. It's a ruin now. Um, and uh, I tell a, lot, a little bit of the story of that house uh, in, in, in the book. Um, I don't want to go into it. We'll, we'll, we'll get to it in a second. I, I actually want to ask about the Balfour <coughs> Declaration, seeing that this is your first book talk on the Hundred Years' War on Palestine here in the Imperial Capital, uh -huh. where many of the decisions about the fate of Palestine were first made. And I want to ask about why you see the Balfour Declaration as this first declaration of war. Um, what is it about Balfour and what happens in 1917 that for you is a kind of origin point? There are a few things to be said about Lord Balfour. Um, I discovered some of them giving a talk at Notre Dame University in a conference on I India. Uh, Ireland, India, and Palestine, politics of partition. Uh, and uh, I, the audience was wildly enthusiastic about my harshly critical depiction of Balfour's politics uh, over Palestine. And afterwards, I, I talked to my hosts, and they said, boy, I didn't think people were that interested in Balfour and Palestine. See, it wasn't nothing to do with Balfour and Palestine. He was chief secretary in the castle in Dublin, and he did this, 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 this. And we hate him as much as you do. Um, so... Uh, so Balfour is a wonderful figure in so many ways, a cynic, uh, a brilliant man, a fine writer, um, a, a great imperialist, um, and, someone who, and someone who I think had contempt for most of the peoples he dealt with, the Irish, the Arabs, and the Jews, for that matter. Uh, he was prime minister in 1905 when the right. Alien Exclusion Acts were passed, uh, one of the most anti-Semitic pieces of legislation in British history, for those of you who don't know at a time when Jews were being persecuted in Eastern Europe, the time of the pogroms, Balfour's government uh, put through legislation to stop indigent Eastern European Jews from coming to the United Kingdom. That's the man who issued the Balfour Declaration. So the idea that he was a philo-Semite, I think, uh, should at least be questioned. Um, but he was an imperialist, and he believed that Britain uh, needed to control Palestine. He and the war cabinet and cabinets before him and, and, and the, 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 the imperial general staff before World War I had decided that Palestine was vital to the British Empire. This is before any connection with Zionism. And so the idea of a connection with the Zionist movement was developed during World War I. Uh, as soon as, in fact, Lloyd George became prime minister, it became a, a topic in the cabinet. And the important thing about the Balfour Declaration is what it says and what it doesn't say. It talks about a Jewish people and a national home. So it says there is this party which has national characteristics and is entitled to a national home in Palestine. And it's the only group mentioned by name in the Balfour Declaration. It's important because it's a cabinet statement. It's not just Lord Balfour you know, scribbling on a piece of paper and sending it to Lord Rothschild. He is, he, is, he is informing Lord Rothschild, who is supposed to inform the Zionist movement, that the British cabinet has approved this declaration. And what the British cabinet has approved is a declaration which says His Majesty government will use its best efforts to establish for the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine. There is no mention of Arabs or Palestinians. The only other thing that's mentioned is non-Jews, and they are not entitled to national rights. They are not entitled to political rights. They're entitled to civil and religious rights. That has been a constant theme, from Balfour to Kushner. 
the same exact disregard of the Palestinians, the same absence of the Palestinians, the same erasure of the Palestinians, who were 94, perhaps, percent of the population of the country at the time, is a feature of the Balfour Declaration and is a feature of the Trump plan, in fact. Now, the reason that it's, the second reason that this is important is that the Balfour Declaration is incorporated verbatim into the League of Nations mandate for Palestine that's issued to Britain in 1923. And it amplifies every single aspect of that declaration. The absence of the Palestinians. The mandate is, I forget how many articles, 16, 14, 18. Palestine, the Palestinians don't exist in that document. The document has article after article explaining how Britain is supposed to help in the establishment of a Jewish national home. Six, I think, or seven of the 14, or whatever the number is. Um, and I think that's why it's really important. This is a British and later on international declaration of what is supposed to happen in Palestine. And it's basically saying the indigenous population is to be held down in order that another group that exists in Palestine, but which, whose numbers are to be amplified by immigration, are able to establish their national home. Now, it doesn't say state, but I, as, I, as I cite something from uh, Weizmann's memoirs, uh, about a meeting he had at a dinner at Lloyd George's home, where Lloyd George, Balfour, and Churchill tell Weizmann, but of course we mean a state. As soon as you have the numbers, you'll have a state. And that's why we didn't allow for representative government. The Covenant of the League of Nations talks about self-determination and representative government. That was not granted to the Palestinian Arabs, the overwhelming majority of the population. Why? Because self-government would have meant an end of the project for a Jewish national home. The majority would not have accepted to turn their country into a national home for another people to be created in their land at their expense uh, under any circumstances. Yeah, and if we look at the text of the mandate itself, we also see the ways in which the Yishuv is recognized mm -hmm. as a, a national collective entity. We see things like... With representative institutions, diplomatic representation, and so we on. We see things like citizenship rights being granted to Jews and not to Arabs in this context. So there is a way in which, the, as you suggest in the book, the mandate itself as a kind of legal document creates this certain reality of uh, division. I want to know, what is it that this brings about in the Palestinian community uh, at the time? How do Arabs in Palestine respond to Balfour? I mean, let's talk a little bit about the protests, yeah. the violence of the interwar yeah. era. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, that's the second part of the, of the, second, of, of the subtitle. Uh, this is resistance by an indigenous population to an attempt that slowly but surely they dimly begin to perceive is intended to replace them. Uh, that's the intent. The intent is not to share the land. The intent is not to create two states, although the partition resolution does call for the creation of two states. The intent behind the British, uh, 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 behind British policy, and behind the policy of the Zionist movement is to replace the Palestinians. And the, I, I, I'm very critical of the Palestinian leadership in this book and in the other book you mentioned, The Iron Cage, because I think they came much too late to a realization of this. They came much too late to a realization that much much different means would be necessary to oppose this. Um, they were divided, they were weak, uh, they were uh, uh, a leadership uh, drawn entirely from the elite um, and which was afraid of popular politics. Uh, and when popular politics developed in the late 20s and early 30s, uh, they were very, th that leadership was very worried about it. And finally, they missed their moment. Um, if you look at the history of anti-colonial movements in the interwar period, there's literally one single people on the entirety of the globe that frees itself, at least partially, from British imperial rule, rule, and that's the Irish. And they did it in 1921. 
the, 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 the Egyptians with a revolt in 1919, the Iraqis with a revolt in 1920, succeed in gaining some measure of independence. The Palestinian, the, the, the real Palestinian rising against the British, uh, the militant military up, 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 uprising of the 36, 39, what we call the, uh, the Great Revolt, um, was 15 years too late, 16 years too late. Uh, by that time, uh, the issue of had, had developed into a, 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 an entity that controlled more than half of the economy of Palestine in a segregated Jewish economy um, that had uh, already developed over 30% of the population, uh, that had a solid military backbone, which the British then reinforced during the revolt by arming and training auxiliary forces to help them suppress the Palestinians. That's the back, that's the back, that's the Palma. That is, those, those are the people trained by Wingate and so on and so forth that form the backbone of what becomes the IDF later on. Um, and so it's too late. Um, but they did resist, is my point, uh, in, in the wrong fashion, at the wrong time, mm. with, in my view, not very good leadership. And this includes one of the people who I talk about a lot, which is my uncle, yes. who played a big role. We're going to talk about him. Here he is, oh, he is. Dr. Hussein uh, Al Khalidi on the left. Seated at, at with these fantastic handlebar to my mustaches. Right. Um, and he was the mayor of Jerusalem. He was deported by the British to the well, Seychelles. That's, that's Ahmed Henry Pasha, who has the beautiful mustache in the middle. That's not my we, should all, we should all aspire. <laughs> but, 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 but Dr. Hussein is, is, is deported to the, to, to the Seychelles, and he recognizes what you're suggesting, that there's a kind of failure of leadership. He castigates the national movement. Uh, he talks about uh, how these internal divisions have undercut Palestinian nationalism. And, I, and, and one of the arguments you make here, but you've made it in the Iron Cage, is that really we have to understand the failures of the Palestinians in 1948 as a function of the failure of 36 to 39. Right. And before. And before. Absolutely. But I'm curious, what, what, what is it uh, about these internal divisions? Why is it that the Palestinian national movement uh, is so dysfunctional in his view? Well, uh, I think Dr. Hussein, frankly, was, was part of the problem as much as he saw uh, some of the problems himself. Um, I mentioned one of the reasons. Uh, uh, there was no such thing as a mass-based political party in Palestine. And when Hezb al-Istiqlal started to develop in that direction in the late 20s and early 30s, the traditional leadership and the Zionists and the British were terrified of it. Um, when they called for following the example of Gandhi, of non-cooperation with the British, of boycott of British goods, uh, the leadership was terrified because the leadership had staked its approach on the idea that they could negotiate with the British, that somehow they would convince the British, as if the British didn't have policies that had nothing to do with what the Palestinian leadership said or did. Uh, it, was a, it was a fatal and foolish illusion, uh, quite similar, in my view, to the illusions of the Palestinian Authority leadership today. They have absolutely no idea that Trump is not going to listen to them, however much they bleat. Um, so uh, I think that he, he saw some of these problems, and especially after his, this is an, a photograph taken in the seashells. He's lost about 30 pounds um, by the time this photo was taken. He was not, he was not well. Um, and uh, he had realized some things about the British that I think he hadn't realized mm -hmm. in the 20s and 30s. Um, he had served as a medical officer under the British. He had good relations with many uh, British officials. He spoke perfect English. Uh, he'd studied at St. George's School, an Anglican school in Jerusalem, and then he went to the American University of Beirut. Um, and he was furious at the fact that the British would never treat him as an equal. Uh, their disdain, their contempt, their racism, their arrogance just grated on him. But until his exile, I think he, he, he didn't fully realize how mistaken they had been. 
well, then it, it raises the question of where where is inter-Arab political story in all of this? Because if, if we see the British as a kind of failure for the Palestinians, we might ask, well, what about Transjordan? What about other sort of proto-national movements right. uh, of the age? And one of the photographs here, this is uh, of your father uh, delivering, uh, who, who tells you, and you begin the second chapter of the book about 1947-48, talking about how he's asked to deliver a message to King Abdullah of Transjordan. Uh, during the partition vote, and you talk about the failure of the Arab states in undermining Palestine. Can you talk a little bit about these inter-Arab failures? Why right. is it that there is no support or not successful uh, well, diplomatic? Yeah, that's a good question, Seth. Um, and I won't go in great detail into, into a response as, as to why the Arab governments were, were not more supportive. The first thing to understand is that these Arab governments were still under direct or indirect control, in many cases of Britain. Britain continued to occupy Egypt until 1954. Britain continued to have bases in Iraq until 1958. And these were bases on, uh, that, were, that were rooted in unequal treaties that had been imposed in the 30s uh, on these two countries. Um, and uh, most of these countries were not fully independent. Uh, Lebanon and Syria only got their independence after World War II. Um, the only one that had been independent was Saudi Arabia. The only ones were Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Uh, uh, so that's part of the problem. Uh, the British uh, again and again manipulated their clients, their, their uh, allies within Egypt and within Iraq and, and Jordan, of course, um, to uh, uh, prevail upon the Palestinians at different stages. And, and this has been a constant problem. Uh, pu public opinion in the Arab world has generally been extremely supportive of the Palestinians. The government's much less so, and in large part because of external influence. That was true when Britain was the great imperial power. That's true today with the United States. Most governments are more worried about the United States than there are uh, of their own people's views. Um, as far as that uh, anecdote about King Abdullah, um, my father was very ill and he called me into the dining room and he said, sit down, I'm gonna tell you a story. And he told me the, a story that I, that I retail and in, in, in that, I, that I tell at length uh, in one chapter of the book, which had to do with a visit that he paid to King Abdullah carrying a message from his older brother who was the, uh, uh, the uh, secretary of the Arab Higher Committee. And he had charged my father with telling Abdullah that the Palestinians would not agree to wasaya, Jordanian wasaya, Jordanian protectorship. I, 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 there are different ways of translating wasaya. Um, and I, I understood later on, talking to Avi Shleim, who wrote Partition, uh, uh, Collusion Across the Jordan, uh, what the background to this was. The background to this was that King Abdullah, uh, Moshe Sharet, and Golda Meir had been negotiating prior to this. This is 1947 that the visit took place to Jordan, my father's visit, uh, to come to an agreement about the disposition of Palestine. This is before the partition resolution is passed. And uh, Abdullah had been telling his Zionist interlocutors, I will, I will take care of the Palestinians. I will bring them under my control. Don't worry about that. Let's cut a deal. Mm -hmm. And the British, meanwhile, were telling Abdullah, under no circumstances will you fight the Jews. Under no circumstances will you fight the Zionist movement. You will, you, you have an army that we train, pay, officer, and control, in effect, and your army will not do anything we say we don't want it to do. So uh, Abdullah was dealing with these two constraints. So my father goes to see him and tells him, um, your highness, he had another mission. He was there for another purpose, which was completely ruined by the message he was taking Abdullah. Your Highness, I'm, t I'm sorry to say, but my brother tells me to tell you that the Palestinian leadership regretfully declines your offer of wasaya, of protectorship. 
Abdullah is, infuri is infuriated. He stands up, and at that point, the audience is over, and everybody in the room stands up. At that moment, my father told me, as I'm sitting there listening to this story at 18 years old, um, somebody walks into the room and says, uh, Your Highness, uh, the BBC has just announced that the UN General Assembly has voted for the partition of Palestine. Abdullah, at that point, turns to my father and says, I'll say it in Arabic, and then I'll say it again. You Palestinians have refused my offer. You deserve what's going to happen to you. And he stomps out at that point. And I told this story to Avi much later. He says, ah, now I understand. Abdullah's tone changes in his exchanges with the, with the leadership of the Jewish agency immediately after this. So what, what does end up happening after that partition vote? I mean, you, you write a little bit about uh, the, the 48 war and what is known in Arabic as the Nakla or the catastrophe mm -hmm. that follows uh, after partition. Maybe say a little bit about how partition is, is received by the, by the Palestinian community, but also talk to us a little bit about the Nakba. What does it mean for Palestinians? What does it mean for your own family history? Right. You describe the displacement of your grandparents from, from Jaffa in this book. Um, and I would say that this is probably an experience shared by most Palestinians, whether in the diaspora or uh, on the inside. How does this uh, experience affect and transform Palestinian identity? Well, it transforms the lives of everybody in Palestine, obviously, Jews and Arabs. Um, the State of Israel is established as a result of the war uh, that starts immediately after the passing of the partition resolution. Um, it changes the lives of Palestinians in different ways. It changed my life because I wasn't born at the time, but my father and mother had been in Palestine in 1947 and had been planning to come back when my father completed his studies in the States. The Nakba takes place. Uh, my grandparents lose their home, which is where my father had been living, and he had no place to go back to. So he stayed in the United States, and I'm born there. So, you know, so in fact, it, it affects everybody differently, obviously. Um, but more importantly, what, what happens uh, in the context of the Nakba is several things. The, the, the most underappreciated aspect, I think, of what happens in 1948 is that the ethnic cleansing of Palestine begins long before the formal Arab-Israeli war between the Arab states and Israel begins on May 15, 1948. Over 300,000 people have been driven from their homes. Every major Arab urban center on the coast, Jaffa and Haifa and West Jerusalem, have been emptied of their populations before the state of Israel is established, before the British leave Palestine, before any Arab army enters Palestine. So the, the Nakba, properly understood as the catastrophe that, that befalls the Palestinian people, starts in the spring of 1948, not, in 1940, not, in May, 15, not on May 15th. Uh, what then happens when the Arab armies enter is history. We all know that. Uh, there are many myths about it, but we know the outlines of it. Another 400 or so thousand people are also driven from their homes or flee in terror. Um, and that's been well chronicled by multiple historians. Well, this is, though, a, a sort of central bone of contention when we talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. D did the Palestinians leave on their own accord, or were they forced out? And this is something uh, that's been discussed and published uh, by a host of historians, traditional historians, the new historians. Benny Morris, but your own cousin, Walid Khalidi, writes about the depopulation of Palestine in the 1950s. And I want to ask you about how these historical narratives about 48 are crafted. Right. Who is listened to when we talk about 48? Right. What is the reason for the making of this refugee population? And what, what was the role of oral history accounts, Palestinian stories of their dispossession, in comparison, for example, to the archival documents that were found 
by the new historians in Israel. Much later, yeah. Well, I mean, if anybody had listened to the victims, we would have known the story from 1948 because they were willing to say what had happened to them. Uh, nobody listened to them. Um, an authoritative narrative, which was largely driven by is the state of Israel and its, its, its very competent uh, 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 assertion of its version of history, um, and its many friends abroad, uh, um, David Kimchi and others, uh, who were instrumental in, in writing up a specific version of this. Uh, a few major Israeli leaders, Ben-Gurion himself among them, crafted parts of this myth uh, about the Arabs left because their leaders told them to. Their leaders did not tell them to leave. Their leaders uh, uh, were trying to keep them where they were. Uh, they realized what would happen if they left. Moreover, the Arab governments, which were beginning to suffer from a flood of refugees in southern Lebanon, in southern Syria, and in Jordan, uh, even before May 15th, were already panicking at the flight of the refugees. So there was no Arab or Palestinian interest in having people leave. It's a complete, it's complete and utter nonsense. It's a lie of the, of the, of the boldest sort. Um, I think what's important about this is that it's important to listen to the voices of the people who actually went through that experience. And we're now beginning to have oral history. The American University of Beirut has an oral history collection, which is quite, quite um, uh, comprehensive of people who unfortunately are being talked to in old age. It would have been much better if this had been done in the 40s or the 50s or the 60s, but at least it's been done. Um, and I can tell you as somebody who had to leave his home twice in Beirut because of the war. I li we lived in Beirut uh, from the early 70s until 1983, a year after the PLO left. And we were forced to leave our home because of sniper fire uh, from Holiday Inn, I think. Uh, and then we went to my mother's house. And then when there was shelling in that neighborhood, we moved back to our house. So we moved twice. Anybody who's lived in a war zone knows that anybody who has a family and children is not going to stay where mortar shells are landing and there's sniper fire unless you want your children killed. So the idea that the Arabs somehow left because their leaders told them to or because of some vague ruthlessness is, is, is something that's only rooted in the experience of callous people who don't understand what war is actually like, who've never been anywhere near a war zone. If you've been near a war zone and you have a family, you will move them unless you're completely callous and they're responsible. Um, and that's what happened. Uh, there were massacres. There were bombardments. The bombardment of Haifa and Jaffa was systematic and indiscriminate. And the idea was to drive the people out. Uh, and it succeeded. So 60,000 people leave Haifa and 60,000 people leave Jaffa in April and May of 1948 before, as I say, the, the state yeah. is established. And that happens on a different scale and in different ways all, all over Palestine. And so for you, this is a kind of formative second moment of a war uh, on Palestine. You, you then turn... W w in which I argue that the partition resolution is a rammed through by the Americans and the Soviets is a second declaration mm -hmm. of war. So right. carrying on from that, you talk then about two other uh, moments in this history of the Hundred Years' War on Palestine. The first being the 1967 war when we see the Israeli conquest of the West Bank, Gaza Strip. Uh, Golan Heights and East Jerusalem, and also uh, the events of uh, Lebanon in 1982. And I wanted to ask you about both of these, because these are two episodes that you were tangentially and directly involved with. Uh, the first, you, you talk about how your father was a UN official. We can see him here in this photograph. I think he's in the back with a pipe, right? Yeah, he's sitting behind the president Yeah, um, with a white shirt, a light, t a light suit, and glasses, a bald head. Okay. Fantastic. And a pipe. And a pipe. So this, this is him, and you're in the business. In those days, you could smoke in the Security Council chamber. 
So, so, so you're, you, you talk in this uh, recounting of 67, how you are also in the visitor's gallery watching the Security Council debates. And I'm curious uh, about uh, what it was like to live through this event. What does it mean to be in the presence of these kinds of conversations and debates? And maybe you can connect that to your own experience here in the Commodore Hotel when you're uh, uh, Right here. Also, is, that a, smoking is that a cigarette or is that a, a That's pen? a cigarette. Okay. <laughs> like father, like son, right? Uh, yeah. so, so here you are uh, in 1982 in, in Beirut at the Commodore Hotel um, as serving as a, a source. Talking for to journalists. Talking to journalists uh, during the war. So he, here are two interesting moments. Both of them you... David Hurst at the top left. Oh, Guardian, David Hurst, H-I-R-S-T. So both of these <coughs> formative moments you see as part of this war on Palestine and you also are present at both of them. So maybe talk us through 67 and 82. Why do right. you see these two as part of well, the Well, 67, uh, my, my involvement was obviously completely tangential. I was a, I was a, uh, just finished my freshman year uh, uh, as an undergraduate. Um, and I, uh, I, would, I would go down to the United Nations every day. And uh, when my father, my father worked in the, what was then called Political and Security Council Affairs. And so as you see there, he's behind the, uh, the undersecretary who always was either a Soviet or Ukrainian or Belarusian official. Today, what's called the Department of Political Affairs is always under an American. Um, and I think that says something about what's happened in the world since 1967. Anyway, um, and the, the uh, minor event that I recount in this, uh, in this book uh, had to do with an attempt to stop the Israeli advance uh, on Damascus on the last day of the war, or the second to last day of the war. Um, uh, ceasefire resolutions had been passed. Uh, the Israeli army kept advancing. The Soviet uh, representative got angrier and angrier and more agitated, more agitated. And finally, they passed a resolution which calls for the, S the Secretary General to report back to the Security Council within two hours. It's very unusual, meaning if they haven't stopped, let us know. Uh, and I sit there impatiently in the gallery waiting and waiting and waiting for them to you know, do something. And uh, finally, Ambassador Goldberg, who is the US permanent representative, asks for a recess. And everybody gets up and goes away. And I wait for my father to come out. I say, what's happening? Uh, why aren't they stopping the Israeli events? The Israelis had, had not quite reached Quneitha at this point. And Damascus is a flat 20 or so kilometer, 30 kilometer okay. ride away. And for Israeli tanks, that's a matter of a couple hours, two or three, maybe four hours. Uh, Syrian resistance was crumbling. And everybody's saying they're going to reach Damascus if they're not stopped. by the, by the and, and there was a ceasefire resolution, which obviously the Israelis were not obeying. And my father looks at me and says, uh, he, uh, Ambassador Goldberg uh, is consulting with his government. I say, consulting with his government? His government's up uh, I-95, I mean, right here. He said, they're just giving, he acted like I was an idiot. He said, they're giving the Israelis more time. What's wrong with you? This is all in Arabic. He's telling me this. Um, and so, uh, I, I mean, I was young and naive. I, I, I understood, but I didn't fully understand. Having seen the U.S. government documents, on 1967, it's clear why Ambassador Goldberg was running mm -hmm. interference for the Israelis. Um, the head of the Mossad had been in Washington. He talked to the Secretary of Defense, uh, Robert McNamara. He talked to the President, and the United States gave the Israelis a green light to go ahead with the war. They told them, "You're going to whip the Arabs." You, the term used by one of these briefers is "whip the Arabs." Whatever happens, if they attack you first, you'll beat them in a couple of days. If you attack them first, you'll annihilate them. They don't use that word, but that's the. the, the the burden of what the Americans are telling the Israelis. Uh, uh, and they basically give them a green light. And so uh, this is not an Israeli war alone. Uh, the, the head of Mossad is in Washington to get approval to go ahead with a preemptive attack. 
uh, on the Egyptians. Um, there's a whole other story there, which I obviously don't tell, and which a friend of mine is now researching, which is the Egyptian side of this. Mm. How did the Egyptians put themselves in a position where they had, they had provoked the Israelis and, 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 and done something that Israel had told them ahead of time was a casus belli? which is, say, sending troops back into Sinai, removing the UN observers, reoccupying Sharm el-Sheikh. That's a whole other story. I don't get into that. Uh, I get into the aspect of it, which I think is important to the story on Palestine, which is this is not just an Israeli war. This is an American-Israeli joint effort. So in that light... And, and, uh, sorry, and yeah. then I get to 242, yeah. which I think nails down the, that interpretation. And, 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 and you talk in, in the book about the ways in which 242 becomes a kind of legal instantiation similar to the Balfour Declaration exactly. and similar to the mandate, and this is why you see it as another chapter. One of the themes, though, that comes out is that the Americans have become a central player right. in this question of Palestine, and, and that also, I think, connects with the 1982 war in Lebanon. Precisely. And maybe just uh, say a few words about your own experience of the war, because I know mm -hmm. you and Mona, your wife, were living there with your two daughters, and your son was nearly born. So you're living in the middle of uh, Beirut during the, the Israeli invasion of 82, an invasion that has similar parallels with the question of American green lights. Exactly. Uh, you, you're the one who discovered that, not me. <laughs> so um, read his book. <laughs> we, could, we, could we could talk ab about the, this question of the green light, but I, I want to, to, to sort of have you give us a sense of what does it feel like to be in Beirut in 1982? And what does it feel like to be a historian writing about that? Now? I mean, the one, the, one, the one who should be up here talking about this is, is my wife, who was working in the Palestine News Agency in the, um, in the uh, Arab University neighborhood, which was the target of the first day's bombing, and who had to get out of there in order to get home to our two daughters. I was at the, I was at the university. I was teaching at the American University. And uh, I rushed home. I rushed actually to pick the girls up from their different. One was in daycare. One was in uh, a nursery school. The other was in kindergarten. Um, but she had to run home from from the site of the bombing. She should tell the story, not me. Um, it was what was it like? I mean, uh, if you've ever been in a war zone, um, you realize that you uh, you do the best you can in difficult circumstances, which is what we did. Um, we all moved in together. My mother and my, my, my brother, I think my nephew is here, his son, um, and um, Mona and I and our, our two daughters. Um, and we lived, you know, in, in circumstances of siege with um, no water, no electricity. Um, you know, the Israelis couldn't have besieged a better prepared city than Beirut because we'd already been in 1982 through the better part of seven years of war uh, since 1975. We were used to deprivation. We were used to no water. We were used to no electricity. We were used to no fuel and so on and so forth um, as, as an urban population. Um, but it was, it, was, it was extremely trying, partly uh, because the aerial bombardments were much more extensive than anything that we'd ever experienced. They weren't constant, but when they bombed, it was quite scary. And my daughters were quite terrified um, by it. Um, and I, and they, they bore the, the, the effect of, of, of uh, seeing ships that were firing shells, seeing helicopters, seeing planes, um, hearing the sound of tanks. They, those things haunted them for, we, we later learned, for quite a while. And how did it, from your vantage point watching the PLO, I mean, how did it affect the Palestinian national movement? Because this is the moment of the PLO's departure from right. Beirut to Tunis. This is a kind of dispersal right. of the Palestinian leadership. So 82 is this formative experience for the Palestinians. and. Uh, many of the things that have happened since can be connected to this right. this invasion. I mean, it's the it's it, Sharon had three objectives, 
uh, endorsed by the Israeli government and by the Prime Minister, Menachem Begin. Uh, his first objective was to drive the PLO out of Beirut in order to break the backbone of Palestinian nationalism. He succeeded in driving the PLO out of Beirut and disconnecting it from its popular base, which was an enormous achievement. He, he failed, of course, to break the backbone of Palestinian nationalism because what happens is that the focus of Palestinian nationalism moves inside occupied Palestine, inside the occupied territories. Um, and that's one of the great ironies mm. of the 82 war, that in his success, he created the seeds of a greater failure for Israel. Um, he had other objectives insofar as Syria and Lebanon were concerned, neither of which uh, were achieved. Um, for the Palestinians, I mean, this is a huge, this is a terrible defeat. Uh, and those who tried to spin it into a victory were, were harshly criticized by uh, people at the next Mejid uh, Swatani, uh, Palestinian National Congress Council, at which somebody said, another victory like this, and we're going to end up in the Seashells Islands. Uh, this like is not a victory. Uncle, yeah. <laughs> uh, I forget who it was that. Shafiq Hout, I think, who said that. Um, so it, 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 it was actually a turning point for Palestinian nationalism. But, but it's also, ironically, the moment of a kind of shift away from diaspora politics, away from the Palestinians Precisely. on the outside, to the uh, political activism in the West Bank, in Gaza, and in Jerusalem among Palestinians. And, and you draw a line between 82 and the outbreak of the First Intifada in 1987. And you see this moment uh, from 87 through the Madrid and Oslo Accords as a kind of uh, another chapter in this history of, of the war on, on, on Palestine. And I'm curious if you could talk about how does the Intifada change the image of Palestinians, the first Intifada, and, and what does it yeah. do to the conception or understanding we have of the Palestinian question? I mean, the real expert on this in terms of the image of Israel in the United States is a friend of mine by the name of Amy Kaplan and her quite brilliant book, called Our American Israel, uh, published, I think, by University of Pennsylvania Press. It's a brilliant, brilliant piece of work. And what she shows, and I, I, I mean, I, I agree with her fully, what she shows is that the image of Israel in the United States actually began to change with the 82 war. You could not possibly perceive Israel as David and the Arabs as Goliath when no Arab country budged as an Arab capital is besieged for month after month, and as planes and artillery and warships are bombarding the surrounded city. It's clear that the David Goliath image that Israel had carefully cultivated for decades simply did not fit anymore. And the American media reflected that. This is not the Israel we know, and so on and so forth. Um, that did not last. That was a shift that was then uh, partly, largely erased. The, 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 uh, the, di the difference between what happens in 82 and what happens with the first intifada starting in December 1987 is that the first intifada goes on for years and the images don't leave American television. The images of Beirut lasted for several months, a couple months, and had a big effect, a huge effect on some people, uh, but lar were largely erased by an assiduous campaign to reestablish the Israel's victimhood in a situation where it's clearly not the victim. Um, and uh, that, that's impossible to do when you have children throwing stones at tanks. That's impossible to do when you have the kind of repression that Rabin, as Minister of Defense, is authorizing against Palestinians who are demonstrating against occupation. Okay, so, so given that changing context, given the greater sympathy for the Palestinians, what explains in the early 90s the acceptance of the Oslo Accords and the ways in which the Palestinians from the leadership return to Palestine in, right. in the 90s? Uh, and, and how do we, uh, you know, you yourself were involved in the Madrid negotiations, but how do we understand their choices? Why, why return on the basis of the Oslo Accords, which Edward Said famously called Palestinian the Palestinian Versailles? 
Um, and, yeah. and, and maybe on that, I mean, how is this connected to the questions of the Palestinians today in the sense of how they relate to this quasi-sovereign uh, authority? It's not sovereign at all. It's neither sovereign nor does it have jurisdiction nor does it have authority. So it's a shell um, which serves mainly to protect Israel co Israeli colonization and Israeli occupation. That's the main function of the Palestinian Authority, as it was envisaged by Rabin and his security managers. Uh, I was in the room when Shlomo Gazit, who negotiated a major general in the Israeli army, former chief of military intelligence, former coordinator of activities in the occupied territories, a very close uh, 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 advisor to Rabin and uh, as a secret negotiator with the PLO, while we were negotiating in Washington, the back channels had already developed that ultimately led to Oslo, and Gazit was the, the, the chief figure. He said at a, at a public event that I, I attended, um, when he was asked about Arafat, he said, Arafat has a choice. I can't imitate Gazit's accent. My son, who's an actor, can do it very well. I can't. Um, Arafat, Arafat, Arafat has a choice. He can be a lahad or he can be a super lahad. Now, who is lahad? Lahad is General Antoine Lahad, the head of the South Lebanese Army, which is a wholly owned, armed, financed and controlled auxiliary of the Israeli military occupation of South Lebanon. So Arafat has a choice. He can be a super uh, a, a quisling, or he can be a quisling. That is how I'm arguing Israel understood the Oslo Accords. The, the security managers who ultimately had the most impact. I'm not suggesting that necessarily uh, every Israeli negotiator felt that way or understood it that way, but that's how they understood it. And those are the people who determined the outcomes, in my view. What Arafat thought he was doing, what the in much less than competent people he sent to Oslo thought they were doing is another matter. In our negotiations in Washington over a year and a half, we, under, we came to understand a number of things that were absolutely necessary for a real agreement that might lead or could lead to a Palestinian state. One was a stop the settlement. A second was not closing Jerusalem. A third was accepting the idea of Palestinian self-determination and statehood. And a fourth, well, there were others. A major one would have been Palestinian jurisdiction, real jurisdiction. And we held out for those things. Why did Arafat not continue on that path? Because he was really eager to get a deal. In my view, much too eager. And so he sent semi-competent people who barely knew English and had no legal background, paid no attention to the experiences of a delegation that had been negotiating for the Israelis for almost two years, and they cut a miserable deal, which is the basis of where we are today. Yeah, and, and that's maybe where I want to end and then open it up to questions, is this, what of Palestine and the Palestinians today? I mean, given the title uh, of the book and the political reality that they're facing, uh, can this dynamic be Changed. broken? Uh, and what, you suggest some ideas around a shift towards equality and rights. You talk about the question of what does it mean to recognize mutual rights and collective identities. I'm curious what you think a Palestinian strategy for today looks like. Mm. And then uh, I'd like to ask others what they want to ask. Okay, um, this, this, uh, I, I often say that uh, the job description of a historian doesn't include predicting the future. I have no idea how what I'm going to suggest could be implemented. But for there to be a, a, a lasting and just resolution of this conflict, I think that there has to be a, 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 it has to be based on a couple of things. One of the core things it has to be based on is absolute equality. There cannot be one set of rights which are exclusive to one people and cannot be enjoyed by the other people. Any solution based on that cannot endure. It will not be sustainable. It will not last because it is fundamentally unjust. It's a single country. You have to figure out how to have these two peoples live within it. 
Not an easy thing to do. I have no magic wand and, or, or, or recipe to get there. But when they get there, they will have to do that on a basis of equality. How you, how you exercise the national rights of two different peoples in one country, I'm not sure. I don't know. But you cannot have one people that have certain rights, property rights, civil rights, human rights, political rights, national rights, and another people that have less rights than that. I mean, anybody who lost something in Vienna during or before the Holocaust has an absolute right to regain their property. That's property. That has nothing to do with the national conflict. That's property rights. But Palestinians don't have that right. The whole legal system, the whole system of, 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 of in my view, legalizing illegality has been created to uh, justify, legalize the, the, the theft of all of that property. That's an example of one of many, many kinds of rights that I think have to be, you have to figure out a way to do that. Um, this does not mean people return to villages. There are no villages left. Those villages have been destroyed systematically and with a forethought. So this is not gonna be, you know, so-and-so goes back to whatever village it may be. Uh, th those villages don't exist. And how you implement it, I have no idea. But if anybody from Britain or anybody from the United States of Jewish heritage can go to Palestine and live there as a citizen, why can't Palestinians do that? Now, how you adjudicate that, I don't know. One state, two states, five states, cantons, I don't know. I, frankly, I don't really care, and I don't think it's going to happen very soon. Why is it not going to happen very soon? Well, this is a country where I think you know something about privilege. I live in a country where I know a great deal about privilege. I live in New York City. So the barons of Wall Street own New York City. The developers own New York. They own it. They do whatever they want. How you get people to give up privilege is not an easy question. But there are people who enjoy privilege at the expense of other people, and somehow they have to be convinced to give up some of that privilege. How you do that, I don't know. I'm not a politician. And I'm not you know, trying to chart the future. But unless something is done in that direction, you're not going to have a resolution of this. You have these two peoples in this tiny little country. I mean, you can see how small it is. Look, from the river to the sea. It is now a single state with the nation state law and with the annexations that are about to take place, the American-Israeli annexations, and the Americans and the Israelis are drawing the map for the annexations. There will be formally one state with little tiny leprosy-like spots where the Palestinians will be caged. Mm. Uh, and, and kept under complete, total, absolute Israeli control. The population registers will be Israeli, entry and exit will be controlled by Israel, water, air rights, and so on will continue. That's one state, whatever you call it. You can call it a st Palestinian state, you can call it a zoo, you can call it a Bantustan, you can call it whatever you want, Disneyland. It doesn't matter, it's one state. Now, you transition from that to two states, fine. You transition to that, from that to one state mm. with equal rights, fine. I don't know how you would do either of those things. Uh, I was reading something today. Both are almost impossible to envisage. How will you untangle mm. the occupation and colonization of the occupied territories? I don't know. How do you transition from this, this form of one state to a more equal one state? I don't know. But to say this is a realistic option and this is irrealistic is not realistic. Both are not going to be very easy to achieve. Well, I, I must thank you on behalf of all of us for bringing the historian's lens onto these questions, even if you don't always have the answers. Uh, I think this has been enormously rich. I, I think this is my favorite of your books. I think it's a fantastic account, and I encourage all of you to get hold of it. I want to open it up to questions.